0: GM, GM, welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon, I'm your host, and this is the Best of the Month episode for August, where we share one clip from each episode of the last month. Now, I love these highlight episodes as it allows us to revisit some insightful content from our guests and gives you the chance to hear a little bit from an episode and then maybe go back and listen to the full one if you want. August was... Just a fantastic month for the Unstoppable podcast. We announced our Series A funding and $1 billion valuation. We were joined by an investor from Pantera Capital. We talked... Gaming, with the co-founder of the biggest game on the blockchain from Axie Infinity, dove into market cycles and tech innovation with investors from Variant Fund, broke down important properties of NFTs from writers in this space, and discussed problems around connecting your wallets to dApps and websites from entrepreneur funds from TokenProof. So let's dive in. I hope you Enjoy. I sat down with Matthew Gould, CEO of Unstoppable Domains, and Paul from Pantera Capital, and this was a special episode because we had just announced our Series A funding at a $1 billion valuation. We talk about the future of Unstoppable and why this funding is so important to giving us flexibility to build the future of decentralized identity. We also touch on the first use case for NFT domains and how that opens the door for so many other Web3 opportunities. Matt, you mentioned like a lot of different product ideas that you want to be working towards. And Paul also mentioned longevity. When you think about runway that Unstoppable has, I mean, is there anything you can speak to around crypto is so volatile and so many companies don't make it? Like, what is there to say around this, around how long we'll be here for the future? You know, Unstoppable is not going away, right?
1: Yeah, no, we're here for the long, long run. And listen, you don't want to be thinking about all the financial things when you're trying to build and run a company. You really want to just focus on customers and creating value for your users and your partners. And that's a big part of why companies take this funding is because that's just one of those variables you don't want to have on the table when you're sitting around and thinking about building out your products for your end users. So, you know, it's super helpful. Definitely brings into focus the more important things, which is like, making sure you're building awesome products and getting those into customer's hands. It's helpful to, to not have to worry about that. And then we also have to have a longer term time horizon. So markets up, markets down. We all know that crypto over a 10 year time skin is just expanding tremendously, you know, 50% plus growth year over year, the past decade. We think it'll be the same thing going forward until literally every person on the planet has this and just fundamentally. If everyone on the planet is going to be using crypto and sending it back and forth to each other, they're not going to send it to HEX addresses, right? So every single person on the planet is going to have to have an NFT domain. So we know that's where the market is going. We're very confident. And the most important thing you got to do as a startup founder is just make sure you survive and get to the finish line. And that's part of just being responsible founders of companies. And we put ourselves in that position. So we're excited to not have to worry about it, basically, and really just focus on driving value for uh, customers and partners
0: yeah and we're not worrying about it but how would like someone in the community celebrate this with us too (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, definitely change your Twitter handle to your uh, .nft.x or .crypto domain name. Please join us on, on Discord and Telegram and get in there. We have some swag. We actually have a swag store coming out soon, so you'll be able to get your own Unstoppable swag soon enough. Uh, I know that's been a top request from people in the community, and you know, use the products. So we've got a lot of stuff to use. You know, check out our Discord. Follow a couple of our, our people on the team from the product team on Twitter. And t- so you can use the new stuff. We just had email released, like pseudo anonymous email, just went out. So I think that's pretty cool feature for communication across the space and we're just going to keep building
0: yeah i love the building in public that i've been seeing from the engineering team and paul too you write a blog about all the investments that you're making i mean what's the value you see from yourself and also companies like building in public and sharing as they go with their community because web 3 is so community driven
2: It, it really is and just to finish off on what matt said i mean in general like Funding rounds like this are really great because it gives companies like Unstoppable a bit of flexibility in terms of creating shareholder value. You don't have to focus on sort of just tremendous monetization right away. You can actually focus on building product and building an engaged user base and eventually figuring out like the best monetization strategies later on. You know, think about like Facebook, you know, if they didn't raise any capital, they probably would have to turn on advertising right away. Now they had an opportunity to build a user base and then turn on advertising later on. So the flexibility that gives entrepreneurs when you do raise capital and especially sort of large and strategic capital and then being able to maybe even do things like acquisitions, et cetera, which we'll see what happens. But on the community side of things, it's, it's amazing. Never have we ever seen so many companies go, quote unquote, public so quickly right you know launching a token and for us i mean it's one factor in venture capital that you wouldn't have to sort of think about this early unless you're in web 3 and crypto you know we really do want to make sure that folks are building the right communities if you're not doing something with the token then maybe you don't have to start in a telegram group or discord group so so early, but you know, nevertheless, I mean, there's an advantage to that because this space is built off of transparency. It's built off of virality. It's, it's built off of communication and therefore companies that take advantage of being active on Twitter, doing podcasts, discord channels, telegram channels, and all this really just enhances the ability for a product to really get out to the mainstream a bit quicker and be able to sort of spread a bit faster. And so to me, I mean, Unstoppable Domains has been doing all the right things around what you should be doing when you're building community, especially when you have a token, even though though they don't have a token. But I think it really just shows the fact that Matt and Brad and the rest of the team, they're crypto native. They've been in this space a long time. During the last bull market, they sort of know what it takes to get their early adopters involved in the company, involved in the community. And that's going to go a long way because a lot of those early adopters are also the entrepreneurs in the space that they're going to be partnering up with. And so to be able to really have a place where people can talk about their product, share their product, I think it's it's tremendous. And you know, to me, I mean, when I looked at Unstoppable Domains early on, it was really the fact that I don't want to be trying to remember all of these you know, public addresses. It just seemed insane. And so if we can get beyond that, I think that's the first initial huge pain point that Unstoppable is solving. I mean, once you can start removing that out of the picture and then giving people a lot more creativity around their domain space, around their identity, then it just opens up so many more doors, which Matt has talked about, you know, in terms of where the company can sort of go from sort of a product and vision perspective.
0: Yeah. When I heard you say that the funding can allow you to focus on shareholder value in kind of crypto terms that we everyone talks about online in the community, that's utility, right? So now you can focus on that utility, which is more features and really focusing on what you can do with the domain you've already purchased. I was joined by Jiho, co-founder of Axie Infinity, the largest blockchain game. In this clip, we talked about ownership in video games and how Web3 really innovates here. We also touched on how RuneScape Gold was used as real-life currency during economic down periods for some South American countries and how that was an early indicator of digital currency and ownership of in-game assets being used to trade real-life items. If you find this RuneScape Gold example really interesting, I encourage you to also check out episode 126, How Web3 Will Change the Gaming Industry with Kerou from A16Z. You mentioned ownership too and ownership is definitely like a core belief around unstoppable, like around like owning your Web3 identity, your domain and whatnot. And I want to like hear from you. Why is ownership of game assets so significant and different from what we've seen in the Web2 gaming like ecosystem? And I don't know. I think really laying that out is helpful because not everyone coming in, in into this pod is even thinking about maybe gaming as deeply as you are, right? So I hope this question isn't too like too much of a layup for you because for a lot of people, I think this is a, a big fundamental shift in how you approach just digital assets in general.
3: Well, so I grew up playing games and playing games with rich virtual economies. You could actually make money by playing Diablo, by playing Neocuts by playing World of Warcraft and I did, and it was simultaneously very easy because there were, there was real demand, right? People wanted to buy these things because they wanted to save themselves time or for a variety of different reasons, right? They wanted that status. They wanted that power. It was simultaneously really easy because there was demand, but it was also really hard because it was like a black or gray market all the time, right? Like you had to use PayPal and stuff. There was trust involved. You could get scammed. I remember as a kid going with my mom to a food court to meet somebody so that I could sell them something in Diablo, right? This was before D2JSP came out. And, and that was kind of like a little bit of an advancement. So this idea that right, there are things of real value in digital economies, it's not new. It's just that Web3 allows us to make that experience of permissionless and frictionless transaction 10x better.
0: Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I found it so interesting going through some research after a previous pod on like how runescape gold was being purchased by people in i want to i want to say it was bolivia when they were having crazy like inflation and, and whatnot yeah it was like
3: venezuelan gold farmers in runescape that was that was a big thing right and there were people who are it's an arbitrage there are people who have a lot of time and and very little money and there are a lot of and there are people who have very little time and a lot of money and then right it's just that you're just facilitating that transaction so one thing that Chris Dixon said, right, is it's, it's kind of similar to the Jeff Bezos quote, right, where it's like your margin is my opportunity, where traditional game developers, you can look at them as taking 100%. It's like they have a 100% tax rate in these virtual worlds, and they are clamping down on, you know, the black market activity, right? They see it as tax evasion." Whereas our policy is we would rather have a smaller slice of a huge pie than taking 100 percent of something that's destined to become destined to be small because it's not really differentiated and because there's that lack of ownership. So for us, it's like, yeah, we would rather ha- you know, have like one percent of a lot than 100 percent of something that's that's small.
0: I feel like that's addressing the problem of just revenue going to the players and not necessarily the company. And so really, really emphasizing that just decentralized nature of what Web3 can enable. Derek Walkush was a great guest talking about the next crypto cycle. And in this podcast episode, we broke down key themes in the Web3 space like token design, Web3 bundling and use cases that blockchains enable. In this clip... We talk about the unbundling of Web3 wallets, and I personally really liked how he brought up the phantom wallet and how improvements on the UX substantially increased the use of the entire Solana ecosystem. I also think it's interesting to hear how tech has unbundled in the past, and I want to know, will it happen again in crypto? Listen to find out. I want to start talking about wallets and this unbundling concept that you wrote a Twitter thread on. That's how I originally stumbled upon you and your profile. So you have a hypothesis that we all won't be using MetaMask in a few years. And I really like the take because right now we see, I think a lot of times we take what we currently have as truth. And the reality is we're in this massive figuring it out phase. And I mean, MetaMask grew rapidly from... I was just talking to a CEO at Unstoppable, Matt Gould, and he said like a year ago or maybe 18 months ago, you know, MetaMask had 500,000 users and now, you know, millions and millions, like what is it, 20 million plus? So yeah, can you talk through, you know, this hypothesis? Why won't we all be using MetaMask? Like how you're thinking about the concept of unbundling and how it applies to some of the crypto applications we have today?
4: Yeah, really good question. I think it's important to back up a little and just kind of look at the major bottlenecks that still exist in crypto, which I would say there are a lot of problems that are really important. I mean, liquidity is fractured, interoperability is really important. There's obviously some parties that don't want every transaction to be public. So privacy is a really exciting theme. But I think the two biggest bottlenecks in this space still are and really have always been scalability and usability. And I'd argue that when you look back over the past year, the advances we saw in scalability have been pretty massive. I mean, you had the rise of all these Alt L1s that were much faster and cheaper. Obviously, we have like a ZK EVM on the horizon, rise of L2s, roll up infrastructure is a lot better. So I think from the scalability front, there's like a very clear path over the next few years uh, to see faster and cheaper transactions. When you turn to usability, however, I would say a lot of the interfaces you're dealing with, they're kind of just as slightly gimmicky as they were <laughs> over the past three years in an interesting way. And I think when you really think about where kind of the next cycle is going and sort of the new user personas that need to be brought in, if you're dealing particularly with applications that are to consumer facing, I mean, gaming, social, uh, community generated IP, like those people aren't really gonna spend the time learning how to use a MetaMask and understanding what's going on the hood. So you essentially really need to improve the UX as you're dealing with in modern crypto. And another interesting thought experiment that like kind of particularly inspired the tweet was this idea that, think about the long run of what the user distribution of people in crypto will look like. And in my opinion, if you're looking at it on the vertical axis, uh, really being this idea of like volume transactions, and then on the horizontal, call it like crypto experience or like crypto nativeness, if that's a word, I think it'll almost look bimodal, right? On the one end, you're going to have, which backing up a little, I think is just kind of how most industries look, you have like super users, and then you're kind of casual users. So I think you'll have like under your mass retail, it's gonna be low average volume and high in numbers. So that's kind of like, you know, one peak. And then on the other end, your super users are like DGENs colloquially. It'll be these like DeFi power users, other high average volume and low in total numbers. So that's why I would say the infrastructure that currently exists kind of supports the latter group. But in terms of what people are actually using for, I think you know one problem when I talk to a lot of people that I'm friends with in the yield farming community is like, I you can't really see staking APYs on MetaMask. Uh, you don't really like, have an ability to monitor health factors, your leverage positions, and on the other end, it's like a very hard onboarding experience for somebody that's new to crypto. I mean, this is highly, highly anecdotal, but (laughs) like the major barrier in terms of my parents opening a wallet is like, they don't really know how things can get hacked. And I mean, rightfully, when you look at what's kind of being presented in the media, over the past year, you've obviously seen these like hundreds of million dollar hacks and a lot of them are like going to the front end of the host. So the wallet is obviously kind of a main pain point there. So. Like an interesting case study that I also think when you zoom in on, it's kind of interesting to consider is Phantom, which full disclosure, uh, they're in our portfolio, but Phantom really prioritized this very clean, sleek UI that was, you know, relatively simple for people that you could call crypto curious. So when you look at a marginal improvement in UX for that, you basically saw the explosion of the entire Solana ecosystem. It was people that were new to crypto, largely just trading uh, NFTs, like multiple transactions per day, uh, relatively low average prices. But... When you think of like that outcome for marginal increase, what happens when you like 3x that and have like automatic on ramping, better security, and you think of the other features that most kind of like mass retail users look for. So that's why I kind of broadly think unbundling will kind of occur both across like user persona. So you can think of that as like almost your verticals in terms of who you're dealing with in crypto. And then another interesting idea that I've been playing around with more recently is uh, when you think about it in terms of the main components of a wallet, which or like, I think you're going to see dramatic increase in security. You obviously have key storage, in addition to that, transaction signing, and then obviously, like, actually uh, transmitting to a node. I think you're going to almost see unbundling there, too, to the point where people that are developing this next generation of wallets are basically just going to be on the front end. And then you're going to have this other slew of companies, which you're kind of seeing right now with node providers like Infura and Alchemy, that basically productize an API that's going to link in and basically have the back end just be kind of like plug and play in that sense. So, I think that's kind of my like
0: grand thesis for where wallets are going. Yeah, definitely some questions on that. But one thought first is thinking about wallets. Like, I don't know. A lot of people look at wallets as like your center point for Web three, and I just find it interesting because at Unstoppable, my viewpoint right now is definitely like your NFT domain is almost the your go to source day to day because you can connect so many different wallets to it. Like a, a problem point I find with wallets right now is a lot of them are. You're just limited to one blockchain potentially. And so for when you connect wallet on a site, like that site maybe only has information flow to my Ethereum wallet. And instead, if I was logging in with my NFT domain that has my Ethereum, Phantom, Solana wallet connected to it, now they can get some communication and access to you know more of my whole digital self, my, my wallets across chain. So that's been a little bit of something I've been thinking through, too. Yeah, so you mentioned like unbundling and that we've seen in the past in Web two. Like, are there examples you can maybe just explain or showcase? You know, an, an example in Web two on how unbundling happened after like the initial tech explosion. Yeah, once again, historically, it seems to be directionally where a lot of tech heads.
4: I would just kind of level set with the idea that I would argue like the entire modern tech industry was just kind of this gradual process of disaggregation, like computers and then you had hardware and software and then software turned into applications and operating systems and then applications are now just becoming a bunch of different apis and front ends so i think when you kind of look how that progresses over time it i would argue that like to a certain extent you could just sort of level set with like why wouldn't crypto just sort of mimic uh, broader innovation in tech and then i think looking in at a specific example is kind of what happened in marketplaces over the past few decades where you obviously had Craigslist, which is this massive aggregator. because you could think of that as like kind of the open sea um, of what was going on on Web2, just for broader marketplaces, and then that really started to unbundle. And you saw just kind of more niche experiences that basically serve specific, you know, sectors. So you obviously ended up with like your like dating apps and like you know modern tenders and then other marketplaces that I mean now you're getting this generation of like right-wing marketplaces on demand, and then those are all kind of starting to unbundle. But I think There's an important difference there where uh, you are really dealing with kind of specific sectors. So people definitely use multiple marketplaces. I think what's interesting to consider about wallets is I think that unbundling is going to happen more so in the perspective of user persona in terms of, you know, how experienced with crypto they are and how much they really want to get out. Because in my opinion, it's perfectly fine to expect in the long run that some people are just going to interact with like Web3 Social or hold, you know some nfts that are linked to a specific collection that they're part of or a social group or they really want to you know be able to buy the nfts that are launched by a creator that they really care about which like that's fine everyone doesn't need to be like interacting with (laughs) like uniswap taking leverage on like ave in the long run but i think it's important to consider that if you're only expecting to get that much out of the ecosystem the onboarding experience needs to be pretty seamless and then you also are willing to compromise like you know security and decentralization a little bit more than other people which my opinion is fine it's all about what are the individual preferences of that specific user persona
0: yeah i find just because we're like we're both plugged into like crypto twitter right and so many people on crypto twitter are so focused on like being as crypto native as possible and i i see a lot of commentary on like needing to go the full decentralized route but like there's a reason Coinbase exists alongside Uniswap. Not everyone wants to be going through that whole funnel to on-ramp into crypto. And definitely that user experience is something I think, even again, at Unstoppable, like thinking about it too. How can you buy a domain with a credit card or crypto? Like you get to choose, but definitely need to be providing options to all the different personas if you really think about adoption in the long run. Wow, what a conversation we had with Shiv. I love how he breaks things down in easy to understand ways. That's really the goal that he has as a web3 writer. So send this podcast or clip to a friend you're trying to help get an understanding of web3 and listen on as he describes the two most important properties of NFTs. What's the value of NFTs? Like why is the internet a better place for them and, you know, if while you're explaining some of this to me, I think it'd be cool to put me in the shoes of someone who is that beginner friend. So like I'm asking you, Shiv, like I'm your friend, you know, I'm saying what's all this NFT stuff you're talking about? And like, you you have to tell me what the value is. What do you say?
5: Yeah, so I think the the key with NFTs is is that they are a way to represent proof of ownership of something. And it's easier to understand with digital assets because you can actually prove that you can own them. But uh, I wrote another follow-up thread to my future of NFTs one, which was about the properties of NFTs, right? And that kind of explains a little bit about why uh, NFTs have this combination of unique properties that make them particularly well-suited to represent a proof of ownership. So the first is that they are unique. You can't have two NFTs that are the same. They all have a unique address the second is that they are publicly verifiable which means that if i own an nft and it's on a public blockchain anyone can go and verify that i am the owner which you know which when we get to the use cases it uh, it starts to become clear why that's why that's so important right uh, college diplomas and you know degrees are something that i always go back to as you know there's there's no proof like the only way to get actual proof in the Non NFT world, uh, or in a world without NFTs, for things like that, it would be to you know ask the actual university or ask me for a PDF, which is you know as anyone knows is easily photoshoppable. And that's just one example, right? That's the same is true for certificates. It's true for medical records, for legal documents, and all kinds of things that people have an incentive to forge. Uh, identity is another big one. Like there's a massive you know identity theft problem in in many parts of the world, including the US. If you want a digital identity, how do you actually have proof that the person is who they say they are, right? So um, so NFTs are a way to solve a bunch of these problems. And part of the reason is because of this unique, uh, these features of being unique and being publicly verifiable. And then there's a few others which, you know, which- um, Can I jump in real quick? Of course. Yeah, yeah. so
0: you said you said unique and you know I'm I'm looking at all these pictures of NFTs online and I'm thinking like okay I see two pick I, I just saved it's it's so typical in like Twitter everyone's like oh I just right click saved. So but it's not the picture the the visual component of the NFT that really matters is it it's the underlying token, right? That's unique and can you explain a little deeper on on that?
5: sure yeah it's it's the ownership of the token that actually matters that's the only part that you know that becomes really important because sure you can right click and save the actual image and similarly with anything else um but what you're really getting with nfts on a public blockchain is that ownership history right so anyone know if you right click save and you mint your own nft anyone can go and see that your nft is not the same one that that you know, mine is. It's a different one. You minted the NFT yourself. I bought mine for 100 ETH, let's say. And that's where that difference comes in: is that when you have that verifiability and you have that, you know, unique ownership, uh, you just can't, you just can't forge it. It's easy for anyone to go and verify. And maybe the, you know, I, I imagine that the UX layers around this will also get better over time, so that the things that we care to verify are just you know, inherently verified for us through a UX layer, like a blue check mark sort of thing.
0: The GM King Fons joined the podcast for this one. He's the founder of Token Proof, which has been making some waves in the Web3 community. And I actually used the Token Proof app at NFT NYC to get into token gated events. In this clip, we talk about what actually happens when you connect a wallet on dApps. It's important to understand how this all works so you can keep your assets safe. In the future, you know, hopefully everyone will be using NFT domains over connecting wallets to sites. And that's what we're working on at Unstoppable Domains. Enjoy this clip. Can you walk me through like the as-is state of how dApps use wallets to verify ownership? I'd kind of like to start there and um, get a little bit of a, a walkthrough and then walk through in a more detail how how token proof is looking at that future state. Can you do that for us?
6: Yeah, of course. So your digital wallet connects to a node in the blockchain, right? And there's a lot of like node providers, cloud node providers like Infura and Alchemy that run those nodes for you because you don't necessarily want to run your own node. There's reasons why you may, but even MetaMask runs through one of these providers. And so once you connect your wallet to one of these apps or services, your Ethereum address is ran through that node to verify that you own certain assets, right? And if you own those assets, then you can proceed. And that wallet can also send instructions through that node to execute transactions on the blockchain. That's why, you know, we're all able to transact using different wallets, whether it's MetaMask, Trust Wallet, Rainbow Wallet, Coinbase Wallet. But in the end, all of these wallets, transact through a node in the blockchain, whether they host it themselves or whether they use a third-party provider for, for that node, right? And every transaction that you execute on the blockchain requires your private key. And your private key is the most important thing that, that controls your assets. A lot of people think, and this is a misconception, that your actual tokens are stored in your wallet. And that's not true. Even if you have a hardware wallet, like a Ledger or a Trezor, there's no tokens living there. It's not like files on a USB drive. The only thing that lives within those uh, devices, and, and even if it's a software wallet, it's your private key. And your private key is what controls your blockchain account. And if you lose access to your key, it's literally like being locked out of your home because you lost your physical key. It's exactly the same thing. And that's why you want to keep your seed phrase in a safe uh, location, right?
0: So I'm like picturing houses stacked on top of each other. Let's say there's like literally hundreds of houses stacked on top of each other and everyone can see those houses. And in my hardware wallet, which I have access to that private key, I can only get into one of those houses with my hardware wallet. Like I have my key. Everyone can see them. They're out in the public and they're not in my wallet. That's kind of how you're describing that.
6: That's exactly right. And that's also why you can control the same blockchain account through different wallets simultaneously. For example, you could have your MetaMask on your browser and trust wallet on your phone and still interact with the same blockchain address or blockchain account because your actual tokens don't live in wallets your tokens live in the blockchain but they're controlled by your wallets or your private key interesting
0: and with those wallets like what when you connect to a website and you click connect and you click sign is when you click sign and maybe it's different in different cases but when you click sign that's essentially, Putting your private key in the lock and turning it right and saying, like, this is me.
6: That's exactly right. And so it's literally a signature that is generated from your private key and that you're able to validate with your public key. Think of your public key as your Ethereum address that is public and everybody knows it, right? And so there there needs to be a match between that digital signature using algorithms that public key needs to match with the private key. And that's how you validate a digital signature. When you sign
0: into a lot of those dApps, is that signing where a lot of these um, malicious attacks can come from? Or is just connecting to a dApp not necessarily enough to expose your private key and your assets? Uh,
6: Connecting is not going to do anything. If you connect your wallet to token proof, it doesn't even prove that you're the real owner of that wallet. The only thing that proves beyond a reasonable doubt that you're the real owner of that wallet is if you sign a message with your private key because that is able to be verified at a cryptographic level. So connecting wallets is zero risk. Signing a message is the next step in risk, right? Because we've seen some scams Although it's unlikely that, that you'll get scammed just by signing a message. But we have seen some scams where even by signing a message, you're able to lose funds. This is something that we saw earlier this year, where I think you were being tricked into signing a sell order that was then transferred to some a marketplace like OpenSea. And it was basically this document that said, hey, Josh is allowing the sale of this token when in reality, you didn't intend to do that, right? Signing messages is, it's some risk. And you got to be careful on, in what you sign. And you obviously have to be careful in what you connect to anyway. And the next step in, in risk is actually executing a transaction in the blockchain. And that's where a lot of people, the majority of people get scammed, is you execute a transaction that allows for a scammer to make use of your funds or your tokens. And that's what's called a set approval or a set approval for all. Right. And you'll see it sometimes in MetaMask. And that's where you got to really be careful.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. Tweet us your questions, thoughts and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you and thank you so much for listening.